We will be in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6 for our sermon, which Scott just read for us. You're welcome to turn there in your Bibles, in your Blue Pew Bible. It's on page 10, Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. Let me pray and ask God to speak to us as we go to his word. Lord, we believe that you work by your spirit through your word for your glory. And so we lay it open, Lord, to the first book in the Bible, Genesis 15, and ask that the very spirit that brought the world into existence would now work through these words to create faith, hope, and love in this church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I came close to drowning once. It was in a wave pool in Disney World. I was young and not a very strong swimmer, but I managed to get out to the deep end on a raft. And the waves were huge, at least to me, and I ended up toppled off the raft. And a lifeguard had to jump in to save me, and she put a flotation device under my arms and then put one of her arms around me and told me to lean back and relax. And she kept reassuring me, even though I was having trouble calming down, she kept reassuring me that everything was going to be okay. Um, So with every wave or so, she'd reassure me. Now, in the deep end, in this particular wave pool, you, you couldn't exit at the sides. So she had to work us out all the way through the pool And I kept losing my calm. So again and again, she would say things to the effect to reassure me, you're going to be okay. We're getting closer. Everything is going to be fine. And then another few waves would come. I'd get water in my mouth. You're going to be okay. We're getting closer to the shore. Everything is going to be okay. She kept reassuring me. Reassurance is a word that means the action of removing someone's doubts or fears. Reassurance has as its root the Latin word from which we get the word secure. You might say that to reassure someone is to make them secure again. You're going to be okay Everything is going to be okay, she kept reassuring me. It's not just children, you know, that need reassuring. Anyone venturing through life, undertaking a career or a season in school that's challenging or a marriage or the raising of children may begin in a moment of great clarity and confidence. But doubts come, fears come, waves come. And there are so many times when we need reassuring. You're on the right path. You haven't blown it. You're not crazy. You're going to be okay. And as I've been studying the life of Abraham with you all this winter, I've been struck by how often he too needs reassuring. Across his life, as it's recorded in Genesis 12 through Genesis 25, God has to come to Abraham again and again, not to make new promises, so to speak, 
but to reassure him of the promises God made at the beginning of his life. Why? Because Abraham, having set out on the life of faith, he needs to be reassured. Again and again, when you read his story, he needs to be made secure again. And I think this theme of reinsurance really comes to the fore in our passage today, in Genesis 15, particularly verses 1 through 6. In these verses, God does not announce anything new to Abraham about his future. He says nothing he hasn't already told him. What God does do is he reassures him. This unfolds in a dialogue between God and Abraham that's not without moments of great tension. And I want to walk us through it today, helping us understand both why faith needs reassuring, but also I want us to see how particularly God goes about reassuring our faith. And as we move right through this, we'll notice these three things. In verses 1 through 3, we'll notice the need for reassurance. Then in verses 4 through 5, the word that reassures. And then in verses 6, verse 6, the rest of reassurance. So the need, the word, and the rest of reassurance. So first, the need. Why do we need to be reassured? Um, Our passage begins in verse 1 by asking us to look backward. Do you see the opening words? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. What things? What's just happened? It will be helpful to us if we step back and we consider what's unfolded in Abraham's life that has led up to verse, excuse me, to chapter 15, verse 1. Now, we've already spent several weeks looking at chapter 12. That's the beginning of Abraham's life. We saw there that he is a man who God calls then commissions into a mission. And then Abraham goes and he learns this walk of faith. But since then, a lot has happened. Let me highlight two things of significance for chapter 15. First, Abraham has had a falling out with his nephew Lot, who he brought with him. The herdsmen of Abraham's livestock have gotten into strife with the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Picking up at verse 7 of Genesis 13. Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen. Separate yourself from me. So they separate and they settle at different portions of this new land they're in. But since then, in chapter 14, we learn that there's many other people in this land and there's many tribes with kings that are at war. And a great war breaks out between with five kings joining to fight four kings. And in this conflict in chapter 14, Lot gets captured, and the capture of Lot draws Abraham into the conflict. So picking up at Genesis 14, verse 14. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them. It lets you know the size of Abraham's caravan at this point. Picking up verse 15. And he, Abraham, divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants, and he defeated them. Verse 16. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman, Lot. Then at the close of chapter 14, just prior to our passage, Abraham is offered the spoils of victory by the king of Sodom, but he refuses them. Verse 22. 
of chapter 14. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Now it's after these things that the word of the Lord comes to Abraham in Genesis 15 verse 1. And this seems to be why God's word to Abraham in the beginning of our passage stresses protection. You'll see it with the word shield and reward. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, verse verse 1. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God is saying to a man who's now in a war-torn land, who's made new enemies, who has possessions, he's saying, don't be afraid, I'm going to protect you. And he's also saying to Abraham, who didn't take the spoils of war, don't worry, I'm going to reward you. In other words, you will have material prosperity. But here's where things get interesting in our passage. Abraham's response in verses 2 through 3 reveals that something is amiss. Despite recent victory and despite God's assurance of physical protection and material reward, Abraham seems to almost erupt in verse 2 with what borders on blasphemy. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. There's almost a note of sarcasm here. To the God who just gave Abraham victory and has promised to give him ongoing protection, Abram says in disbelief, What will you give me? And With this trembling reference to childlessness in verse 2, notice that Abraham doesn't say, I am childless. He says, I continue childless. There is a whole world of pain in that word continue. I've been praying about this every day for a long time. I continue childless. In this response, we see through the chink in the man of faith's armor to what's really going on. Despite outward successes, there is an inward area of Abraham's life not going well. And where Abraham may have been able to rely on his own strength, so to speak, for his external protection. He might have been able to rely on the fact that he has 318 trained men. He has increasing allies. He could somewhat rely on his own strength for physical protection. But for the provision of a child amidst his barrenness, he has no control and no power. And Abraham essentially says to God, what good is a shield to protect my house when there's no child within my walls? And Abraham voices something that all people of faith can relate to. We say to God, I can trust you there, but not here. I can trust you with that, but not with this. And this, this God, is really what finally matters. 
Now we can understand, or we're at a point to understand, more of faith's need for reassurance. It is not so much that Abraham needs reassuring in an area where he's been successful. Yeah, be my shield, God. I already know that. That's worked fine. What Abraham needs is for his faith to run deeper, touching upon the deepest longings, the greatest fears, and his oldest wound. If a man or woman's faith is to hold fast and to be pleasing to God, it must run all the way down. God is perfectly aware of the state of Abraham's heart. He knows that despite what God's been doing over there in Abraham's life, that there is still a down here in his life. God knows that the people of faith are also and often the people of doubt. And in this scene, it seems to me that God is actually intentionally exposing this in Abraham. And why would he do this? Because God wants Abraham not to just trust him out there, but to trust him here. Not just with that, but with this. And this is our first lesson when it comes to what it means to have your faith reassured. Reassurance is nothing unless it reaches down to what we are most worried about, most feel fearful of, most hurt over. God wants us to trust him with this. Whatever your this is, face reassurance must run all the way down to this. So with Abraham laid open like this, where we see that he needs to be reassured because he's got huge questions in his soul. With him laid open like this, let's ask next, how does God go about reassuring the man? And we see this in verses 4 through 5 when we come to our second point, which is the word that reassures. So here's how God responds. You wonder what he's going to say? Here's what he says. Verse 4, picking up. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him, Abraham, outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. The Lord directly addresses Abraham's fear by reassuring him that your very own son shall be your heir. Two things to notice here. First, the phrase the word of the Lord in verse 4. And second, the extravagance by which God illustrates Abraham's future to him in verse 5. Let's look at both these things. So first this phrase, the word of the Lord. This phrase appears twice in our passage. It's up there in verse 1. It's down here in verse 4. And we might breeze past it. It's the Bible. Of course it talks about the word of the Lord. But in this particular form, the way it's set up, it's rarely used in Genesis. In fact, this is the only place it's used in Genesis outside of one other occurrence in Genesis 24. And it would have sufficed for Moses. You know, Moses is the writer. He's writing Genesis. It would have been perfectly sufficient for Moses just to say, and the Lord spoke to Abraham. But instead, this clunky phrase, and behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham twice. Verse 1 and 4. What does this mean? For an Israelite, 
or a Christian reading this passage later, we must see that it's directing faith towards the clear articulation of God's speech rather than a vague sense of hope or belief. Abraham must trust in what God has said, not what he feels. And the specificity of this word has been ringing across his life so far. So in Genesis 12, verse 7, God says, To your offspring I will give this land. Again in chapter 13, verse 16, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. And now in verse 4 of our passage, your very own offspring shall be your heir. God is giving Abraham something concrete to lean on. His word. Now how does this relate to our need for reassurance? I think this cautions us against two faulty ways we look for reassurance when we have doubts. One of those ways is through human ingenuity and another is through wishful thinking. So human ingenuity first. With the mention of Eliezer of Damascus in this passage, the mention of him becoming heir of Abraham's house, you get a window into something going on in this family where people are thinking up human solutions to Abraham and Sarah's problem of childlessness. God's taking too long. We can figure this out. And that's one of the things we do when we need reassurance. I can halfway trust in God. He works over there. But in this area of my life, I better put my thinking cap up. And I better work on some probabilities and likelihoods and take matters into my own hands. God doesn't mind when we use reason in life. But when it comes to this thing called faith, He will have none of it. It makes him look pathetic. God doesn't want us to trust halfway in him and halfway in ourselves. So he dismisses human ingenuity. Second is wishful thinking. And this is another faulty foundation when we look for reassurance. And here we mistake a human word for a word from God. This can be so easy to fall into, and it's very hard to discern. So let me uh, give you an example of what I mean. You're starting a business. You've prayed much about it, and you sought wise counsel. You've gone about everything the right way. You're a few years in, and things are not going well. And friends in your faith community keep telling you, be reassured, God has promised in his word to love you and to never leave you or forsake you. Surely this means he will prosper your business. And you're going around with that word from the Lord. You promised my business will work. It is true that in Jesus God has promised you his love. Romans 8.39 Nothing in all creation, Paul says, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it is true that Jesus has promised to never leave you or forsake you. Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But it is also true that so many Christians have believed these promises and they did not prosper in this world. Many of them died believing these promises. Abraham dies without getting the promised land. 
What do we make of all this? Friends, this is the point when we push back wishful thinking dressed up in Christianese language. When we push past that, and guys, this doesn't mean God doesn't care about the poor guy who started his business. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about the specific concrete things in your life. What I want to show you, though, is God reassures you by a word from the Lord. And so, it is the case that Christ is always with the Christian. It is the case that God's love is always for you. It is true that in Christ, God will take eternal care of you. It is true that one day God will wipe away every tear from your cheek. It is true. As Paul says, that the sufferings, everything you're going through of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It is true, as the great writer paraphrases, that everything sad is going to come untrue. And it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. All these promises are rock solid. Bank on them. But what you can't do is take them and try to neatly figure out the specific way according to your plans how God's going to keep them in your life. And this this doesn't mean that God doesn't speak to us and guide us in specific situations. It just means, and you know this, if you've ever been following a sense of calling in your life, God called me to this job, he called me to this marriage, he called me to move to this town. You know that you end up doubting that at certain points. And what you need underneath that is the concrete, objective word of God. God, what I do know is that you will never let me go. And that all things work out to good for those who love you. I do not understand how that will work out right now. If I did understand it, that would be human ingenuity. I don't understand, but I will trust the God who speaks to me. And I will flat out simply trust your word that you will keep it. That's how faith is reassured. You know, if you're, if you're not a religious person, you know, um, I'm super glad you're here. I spent a lot of time in churches when I wasn't religious. My parents would drag me there as a kid, thought it was boring. But if if you're not a religious person, I just want to ask, where in the world do you go for reassurance? I mean, you must doubt things in life. Have you made the right decision? You go to the right school? You marry the right person? I mean, don't you need reassurance? Where Where do you look? Yourself? And if you are a Christian, do you have a concrete word that you can put your hand on? It needs to be a specific verse understood in its original meaning, in its right way. And when you get that, oh my goodness, you can, you can live upon it. That's how God reassures by his word. And let me say another thing. We have, we have another point to make, the rest of reassurance. But let me just point out one other thing here that I think is spectacular. And, and that's how, do you see how, you see God just doesn't stop by telling Abraham this in verse 4? This is a very intimate scene. I think it's one of the most intimate scenes in Abraham's life. In verse 5, he brings him outside. It means Abraham was in the tent when this is happening, and it's nighttime. He brings him outside, and he says, look toward heaven. Just, just picture him there. It's the Middle East. There's no electricity. Think of the stars. He says, Abraham, look up. Look up. Look at the stars. Number them if you can. And Abraham, I I think he looks for a while. I think the sense here is he's staring. And 
And as he looks and takes these in, and he's dazzled by this dappled canopy in the sky, the voice comes, so shall your offspring be. Now this is extravagant. Would it not have been enough for God to walk Abraham outside and say, you see that one star twinkling? I'm going to give you one kid. But instead, he th- there's millions. How, Abraham could ne- he can't get his head around this. He said, look, I'm just asking for one. Wait, this is too much. Why is God doing this? It's because God doesn't want us to trust him less, but more. This is extravagant. This says God wants us to believe him for miracle. Miracle. God says, Abraham, stop treating me like a man. I'm God. Treat me like it. Believe me like it. Believe I raise the dead. Believe I make all things new. And I'm extravagant. Look out at this guy. All the places you're wounded and sad. You don't see how things could be made okay. Number the stars. So shall your happiness be. Just trust me. How will it happen? Just trust me. But Sarah's barren. Just trust me, Abraham. So we have a very real need for reassurance. God lays us open to the there, the here, the this. And he speaks a word over us. And it is extravagant because he's God. And he wants us to believe on him as such. One final thing. The rest of reassurance. And this is verse 6. So how does our scene conclude? And we'll return to this next week because a lot happens kind of in the second half here. But our scene concludes here. And it's interesting in verse 6 because neither Abraham or God speak. And they've been the two people speaking. They don't speak in verse 6. The narrator, Moses, instead gives us a summarizing statement. And this, again, this is rare. This doesn't happen a whole lot in Genesis where you're, you're in the middle of the story with the characters and all of a sudden you're lifted up. It's like Shakespeare is all of a sudden going to make a comment about his thought about Hamlet. Here's what's going on, reader. And so you might wonder, how's Abraham going to respond? We don't see him say anything. Did he walk away scratching his head thinking, yeah, I'm no, but whatever, I just can't trust you. Moses tells us that something happened inside Abraham. He says, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. This is such a tender scene. The man believed the Lord. This verse becomes something of a lodestar in the New Testament. It's either echoed or directly cited no less than five times, and no one's a better interpreter of what it means than St. Paul. Paul picks up on this verse in Romans 4. I want you to turn there if you'd like. If you have your blue Bible, just flip to page 942. There's 66 books in the Bible. You've been in the first one. Now you're throwing yourself into the second half in the New Testament. Page 942, Romans 4. I'm going to pick up at verse 18. I want you to hear Paul's commentary on this scene. So Paul picks up at the end of 18. Can you see it there? By quoting the end of Genesis 15, verse 5. So shall your offspring be. You see it there? Paul just quoted God's word at the end of the starry night vision. But then Paul gives us this window into what happened in Abraham's heart during this episode. What's going on? We come to learn that it's not doubt that grows, it's faith that grows. So picking up at verse 19. He, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, 
which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Now pause here. Paul's letting us know all the doubts are flashing through his mind. Yeah, offspring, I'm 100 years old. Sarah is past the years of conceiving. These things are welling up. They're fighting him. Verse 20, you feel the battle inside the man. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise. God is speaking to him. He just goes for it. But he grew strong. You see, his faith is growing. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. You can do this, God. Verse 21, fully convinced. That's Paul's interpretation of what it means that he believed. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But notice what Paul goes on to say. He says this applies not just to Abraham, but to us. Paul says, but the words, do you see it there? Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone. Paul says Genesis 15, 6 was actually written for you. But they were written for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What the first Christians realized about Genesis 15, 6 was that in this verse was buried like a seed the heart of the secret of the gospel. The fulfillment of God's promises would not depend on Abraham's performance as though he had to earn a son from God. And let me tell you why this is important. It has everything to do with the rest of reassurance. What if on top of Abraham's doubts, because God was taking a long time to provide for him, he had to add the doubt, you know, maybe the promises aren't coming true because I haven't been good enough. Don't you think that every day of your life? It must be that I have sinned too many times to merit God answering my prayers. I I just haven't lived up to the standard to be right with God so that He would keep His promises to love me and forgive me and take care of me. I mean, after all, it must be the case that the coming to fruition of God's promises depends on us earning them. The gospel turns this totally on its head. And it's here in Genesis 15.6. God's promises are based on grace, not merit. We receive them, not by meriting them through performance, but by trusting in the God who freely gives. And thank goodness, because one chapter after this, do you know what Abraham's going to do? He's going to turn to human ingenuity. And he's going to take Hagar, their servant they got in Egypt. He's going to go into her, marry her, and have a son with her, Ishmael. If Abraham's hope depends on Abraham's behavior, he's doomed. And so are we. You can't rest in a reassurance that depends on your moral performance. This is what Abraham learns. He simply will go on trusting that the God who chose him, who loves him out of grace, will do exactly what he said. And it's counted to him as righteousness. You know, righteousness, the last word in our passage, it's a really big concept in the Bible. Um, It essentially means rightness. Rightness in relation to morality and justice. 
God is righteous, and for a human being to be counted righteous, it means they've been found acceptable by God. And we read in the Bible, to be righteous before God, you've got to keep all his laws. So in Deuteronomy 6, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he commanded us. So Abraham would naturally maybe think, I need to keep all the commandments. I need to be perfect in order for God to call me right, in order to keep his promises. And the great tension in the Bible becomes man's inability to live up to these standards of righteousness. Humankind stands under this judgment. God has to reiterate again and again what he says to Israel in Deuteronomy 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land, fulfilling the promise of Abraham, to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. You know, I think when a person who isn't really trying to follow God or isn't particularly moral um, or, or doesn't particularly think about standards of morality, I think when they hear Christians always talking about this fact that, oh, we can't be righteous before God on our own, we can't earn being a good moral person, I think they have a hard time understanding it. They don't understand why the Bible keeps insisting this, and Christians do. But as C.S. Lewis so aptly notes, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. If a man or woman actually tries to live up to the Ten Commandments or to love God and neighbor with all their heart, soul, and strength, or to actually work for justice, they'll find out rather quickly just how impossible it is to be righteous according to your own works. And all this trying and failing is really meant to bring us to the vital moment where we understand now why Genesis 15:6 became so important to the early Christians. To believe in God at the point when you recognize you can't earn his favor is to say, you must do it because I can't. I really need your promises to come true and I never will be able to earn them. So please help me. I'm a wretched man. Save me. And when we look to God's Son, Jesus Christ, we realize this is precisely what God does for us. And we believe in Christ, we trust God raised him from the dead, and it's counted to us as righteousness. So how is this reassuring to you who live by faith? To you who have waves hitting you again and again? How does this righteousness by faith, reaching down to the, to the very depths of what you fear most, how does this give you rest and reassurance? It does so because it tells those of us prone to fear and doubt and failure that the coming true of all God's good promises relies not on me, but on him. Our role is not to earn, but to trust. To trust what God has said he will do. Rest assured. No, rest reassured of that. Amen.